This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Angelica Shirley Carpenter to the program. Angelica Shirley Carpenter is the author of Born Criminal, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, Radical Suffragist. Angelica Shirley Carpenter lives in Fresno, California, and was director of the Palm Springs Public Library for 16 years. She's active in the Wizard of Oz Club, which relates to the story she's about to tell us. And she is the author or co-author of four illustrated biographies of, of that were written specifically for young people. Now, is, is this book also written for young people? Well, it's published as a young adult book, but I didn't write it any differently than I write for adults. Um, it's you know, you know how adult biographies are often seven hundred or eight hundred pages long. <laughs> right, right, right. That's the, probably the main difference. Is this one is shorter? Yeah, I never really quite figured out you know young adult fiction in that. I wonder how it is different. You know, use shorter words. <laughs> well, young or... adult fiction is a different story, but um, this is nonfiction, and I guess. There is no difference to me. It sort of depends on the publisher. I've had two publishers for these books, and they've never... I get My first publisher, and these were books for more like for kids, would sometimes make me define a word. Mm-hmm. Or in, in this case of this book, I was careful to explain how the Civil War started, because I don't know that my readers necessarily just know that. But I don't write any differently for young people than I do for adults. I don't use a different vocabulary. Mm-hmm. I don't... I don't take out any parts that I think are too shocking. Um, I just write it the way I write it. Okay. And I'm so happy that the South Dakota Historical Society Press decided to publish it. <laughs> yes, I, I did note there's even a, a connection to the uh, person you're writing about to uh, South Dakota, which I didn't uh, yes, know. Goodness. Yeah. Um, Matilda Joslyn Gage was born in Syracuse, and she lived in Syracuse for most of her life. But she had four children who survived to adulthood, and as times got tough in Syracuse in the 1880s, one by one, they all moved to Dakota Territory. So Matilda, poor thing, used to spend her winters in Aberdeen. I don't know why. <laughs> that would be a good... I mean, real, she just couldn't cope with winter. Well, after she was widowed, she couldn't cope with winter by herself in Syracuse. So she would spend winters in Aberdeen with her youngest daughter, Maud, and Maud's husband, L. Frank Baum, who, mm-hmm. that's the Oz connection. He went on much later to write the Oz books. Yes. Now, like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Matilda Jocelyn Gage was an upstate New Yorker, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, you're now talking to upstate New York here, and you said she's from Syracuse, but wasn't she actually from Cicero? That was the city she of She was born in Cicero. And she lived in Manlius, but she most of the, her life she lived in Fayetteville. But those are all right now kind of suburbs of Syracuse. Well, that they are, but we like to preserve the distinctions. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, and she, she was born in, in Cicero, and she lived from 1826 to 1898. Why do you say she was born criminal? Well, um, she was the one who gave me the idea for the title. Um, when you look at her pictures, she's a very respectable-looking middle-aged woman on the cover when she loved beautiful clothes and elaborate hairdos. So she doesn't look like a criminal. Um, She didn't rob banks or cheat on her income tax or give birth to Jesse James. 
But in 1893, a deputy sheriff knocked on her door in Fayetteville, and he served her with papers summoning, summoning her to court, or arrested her, basically, for breaking the law. And later on, she wrote, All the crimes of which I was not guilty rushed through my mind, but I failed to remember that I was a born criminal, a woman. So her crime at that time was registering to vote, and she was found guilty, and she appealed the decision, and she lost that, too. Did she go to jail? No. Back to, you know, maybe earlier in, in her story, what was her involvement in the movement to abolish slavery? And specifically, I believe she had a connection to the Underground Railroad. Yes, her father was a very liberal person um, who worked in abolition, temperance, and the women's movement. And he made their family home a stop on the Underground Railroad. Matilda was his only child, and she began her life of activism by taking anti-slavery petitions door-to-door in Cicero. Huh. And, and all, of those, all of those three movements borrowed techniques from each other. So as Matilda got older and uh, realized that women, like slaves, had very few rights, um, she also began to understand that the techniques that the, the abolition movement used, like meetings and conventions and petitions and letters and newspaper articles, what worked for one movement would work for another. You said three movements. All the movements realized that. Sometimes they held joint meetings. So in one city there would be an abolition, a temperance, and a women's meeting, bing, 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 right together. Okay. I, I didn't uh, realize you had included temperance there. That was the third movement, was temperance. Yes. Which means not drinking. Right. Okay. Um, I think her father published an anti or a temperance newspaper. Mm-hmm. But abolition was the big cause of her childhood, and then as she became a teenager, she began to think more about women's rights, too. Also, she was adopted by the Wolf Clan of the Mohawk Nation, and we've talked about the Mohawk Nation uh, a great deal on the on this program. What was her connection to the Mohawks and the other nations of the Iroquois Confederacy? Well, she, she, she was born the year after the Erie Canal opened, so... During her childhood, there was great prosperity, and a lot of new settlers came to the area, and they had to live with the Indians. I mean, they didn't live with them exactly, but coexisted peacefully, and newspapers of the time covered both societies, the the European society and the Native American one. And so Matilda, who was a big newspaper reader, read about events in the Indian society, you know, who had become important in the group or fairs or festivals or rituals. And she attended um, events like fairs. And she became aware of the fact that they had, the Haudenosaunee or the Iroquois had participatory democracy and that women in that society had rights that were not just exactly the same as men's, but were pretty much equal to those of men. Mm -hmm. And all her life, she remained interested in this and uh, wrote about it as an example of what could be in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I mean, the Haudenosaunee, you say, as the Iroquois, uh, they, it was a matrilineal society. The That's right. Men became chiefs, but the women kind of controlled a great deal of what went on. 
I think they got to vote on who became chief. Yes, I think that's true. And they got to tell people, the chiefs, if they weren't doing a good job, they could get rid of them. Right, <laughs> right. She was the youngest speaker, and this is uh, Matilda Jocelyn Gage. She was the youngest speaker at the Women's Rights Convention in 1852 uh, in Syracuse. Right. How, how did she do? <laughs> she did really well. She had never been to a convention before. She missed the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention because she had a baby the day before it started. But in 1852, she took her six-year-old daughter with her to the Syracuse City Hall, and she didn't. And she had written a speech. She knew she wanted to speak, but she didn't know how conventions worked. So she just sat there in the audience of 2,000 people until she got up the nerve to speak. And when she did. She stood up, took her daughter's hand, and walked toward the stage, and she said she was trembling in every limb. But the person who was presiding was um, Lucretia Mott, and Lucretia Mott welcomed her very warmly, recognized how nervous she was, and invited her up to speak. And then when Matilda spoke, she made an amazing impression because she had really studied history she was 26 at this time, and she loved history, and she loved especially to read about women and what they had accomplished. So she told the audience what women had already accomplished, poets, scientists, um, you know, rulers, whereas the other speakers had mostly focused on what women could accomplish if they just had more rights. Matilda told them what women had already done. Mm -hmm. And her speech was enthusiastically received, and Lucretia Mott then moved that it would be published. And that's what launched Matilda into the women's rights movement. What was the status of of women uh, when uh, Jocelyn Gage and um, other uh, suffragists like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton founded the National Women's Suffrage Association. Well, I missed the beginning of that. What was the what was the, what was the yeah? What was the status of women in um, America legally? And Matilda uh, said they were political slaves. Um, they they were banned from higher education. Uh, she wanted and pr- most professions too. For instance, she wanted to be a doctor like her father, but no medical school would accept her then. Uh, women could not vote, speak in public, they couldn't serve on juries, they couldn't testify in court, even against abusers or rapists. But if a woman owned land, and that would have been a single woman, um, she had to pay taxes on it. Married women could not own property or sign contracts, and anything they brought to a marriage or earned with their own labor or inherited belonged to their husbands. And their husbands had the right to beat them, starve them, have them locked up in jails or asylum, or throw them out on the street with nothing. And, you know, complete contrast to the Iroquois, if a husband died or a marriage ended, the woman had no rights to her children. And I think, in fact, I was going to bring it up when we were talking before, but uh, an- another uh, figure that comes in and out of some of our history discussions is is Molly Brandt, who was a uh, um, half Mohawk Indian, who was the uh, consort of a British colonial leader named Sir William Johnson. I mean, she was a very powerful person uh, in her own right. Yes, I know that name, but I don't know much about her. Yeah. What was the national citizen edited by uh, Jocelyn Gage? Well, it was um, a very 
interesting newspaper. Um, she bought it. It was called the Ballot Box when she bought it, and she she got the subscriber list too. I think it was based in Ohio then, and she moved it to Syracuse, and renamed it the National Citizen and Ballot Box, and it became the um, official newspaper for the National Woman Suffrage Association. And it's so entertaining to read. I mean, she's so funny and sarcastic. Um, at one point, somebody, well, she just covered everything. She covered working women. She covered conventions quite extensively because a lot of her readers couldn't afford to go to conventions. And she just had such funny arguments and comebacks. Like somebody told her that, I guess in the paper, that, um, you know, what would happen if there was women's suffrage, bad women would vote. And she said, well, what of it? Bad men vote all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a very entertaining paper, very interesting. And it shows her great um, breadth and depth of knowledge, all the things she writes about other countries and um, all kinds of issues. It's really interesting. She could she kept it going for four years, and she re- greatly increased the uh, subscriptions, but she just could not afford to keep it going. Ads fell off, and she couldn't afford to finance it herself. Mm. Well, that, I was actually going to ask you about that. Let me I'll hold that question until after we uh, take a, a short break. Uh, Angelica Shirley Carpenter is with us, author of the book Born Criminal, uh, a biography of Matilda Jocelyn Gage, a radical suffragist. You're listening to the Historian's Podcast, and we depend on your contributions to keep the podcast going. Uh, you can make a donation online by going to www.gofundme.com, gofundme.com forward slash historians2018. If you'd rather not uh, deal with the internet and your credit card and all that, you could make out a check to me, Bob Cudmore, and send it to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. We're speaking with Angelica Shirley Carpenter about her book, Born Criminal, a biography of Matilda Jocelyn Gage, a suffragist uh, who spent most of her life in uh, upstate New York. And as I'm, you know, kind of beating uh, the drum for donations, uh, Angelica, the question I have, you were talking about the newspaper uh, that Matilda Jocelyn Gage uh, created and she couldn't afford to keep it going. How, how did she afford to, to keep to keep herself going. I mean, how how did that work? And she's spending a. Uh, a... Well, at the beginning, um, I think that her husband helped her. He had quite a successful store in Fayetteville when she was just getting started in the movement. But um, as time went on, uh, economic times got harder, and she really relied on speakers' fees. Or sometimes you see an um, like an ad for one of her talks and it'll say 10 cent ad- 10 cents admission to defray expenses all of these early um, women's rights leaders were middle class but they also had to really work to earn the money to keep on the road and keep lecturing and keep putting on conventions she was good at that mm-hmm well, again, I'm reminded, and unfortunately, I'm having a, a memory lapse for her specific name. But there was a, a woman labor leader who came, you know, who spent a lot of time in Amsterdam, where I uh, grew up. And uh, one of the difficulties she had was trying to take care of her children. I mean, she she had been working in a in a mill, and she just 
you know, she got really into the into the movement for labor uh, reform, for against child labor, for um, women's issues. And I think she ultimately had to, you know, give up her children to other, you know, members of her family. Did something, anything like that happen to um, Matilda no, Jocelyn Matilda Gage? Matilda had four children, and they were spaced out. The old, when the oldest one was 15, the youngest one was born. And she always had what she called a hired girl, at least part-time. Um, but she definitely could not have traveled the way she did without her husband's support and help. And there's a cute letter in the book where he writes to his son about he's going to take his youngest daughter on a picnic and her mother his mother's in new york she said i mean the letter from matilda's husband says well your mother's in new york or washington or somewhere but i'm going to take maudie to the country for a picnic and he lists all the things they're going to eat so he was extremely supportive to her um people are surprised by it but he his politics were the same as hers and then later on, as she became more famous, this was one of her gripes with Susan B. Anthony. When Anthony took credit for things that Matilda had written, it hurt her. It hurt Matilda's ability to um, earn money. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. she depended on her <laughs> reputation as a writer and a speaker to get more speaking gigs. There's... Later on, um, the movement. Well, another thing about the movement that was interesting was that it was entertaining. There just people went to see women speak in public. They'd never heard of such a thing, and there wasn't a lot else to do. But toward the end of the, the 19th century, there began to be many more things to do: um, vaudeville, or you know, whatever plays and um, book clubs and all kinds of clubs. So there wasn't the great influx of customers to come and pay and hear mm -hmm. these women speak and eventually it got to be so that only rich women could afford to be that the second wave of leaders then was was they were rich. richer than mm -hmm. matilda and her friends yeah and one thing i wanted to ask you about and you alluded to it before when she wrote a, a lot and she wrote a book called woman as inventor in 1870 and that led to what's called the matilda effect can you explain that yeah, um, a scientist in, I think in 1993, a scientist named Judith Rossiter invented this term, the Matilda effect, for um, the fact that men often took credit for women's inventions, and Matilda knew it too, and she didn't like it at all. And she was always like going to world's fairs or exhibitions and finding examples of where women had invented things and men had taken the credit for it. Mm. So that's why the Matilda effect is named after her. And also, you mentioned a, a few minutes ago, you know, some friction between her and Susan B. Anthony. Um, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, I, well, I would say, is relatively obscure today. Maybe you're changing that. Uh, is it? I hope so. Yeah. Is it because she, she had some sort of dust up or break up with the uh, other leaders of the women's uh, right to vote movement? Anthony had a really interesting uh, relationship at that very first con uh, convention in Syracuse in 1852. Matilda was not a trained speaker and, as I said, was afraid to speak, whereas Anthony had taught school and was very used to standing up in front of a group and speaking in a loud voice. So at that meeting, after Matilda spoke, Anthony made a motion that, or Anthony moved that 
no one should be allowed to speak who didn't have a good, strong voice. Mm. And that got voted down because most of the women there had never spoken in public before. But that was kind of the start of their friction that went on forever. And Matilda was by far more radical than Anthony, although Stanton was just as radical as Matilda. And as they got older, they really came to a break over politics of the women's movement and whether there should be rights first for black men or everybody. I mean, Matilda obviously believed there should be equal rights for everybody, but the more conservative women believed that black men should get the vote first. And Anthony, seeing them as a large group, uh, focused increasingly on suffrage and um, gave up on other issues that Matilda thought was, were important, like equal pay for equal work or mm -hmm. a woman's right to control her own body. And Matilda just wouldn't give up on those issues. And so when Susan B. Anthony took up with conservative Christian groups who wanted to put God in the Constitution and um, God in the public schools, they had a break. They, they broke because Matilda believed in the separation of church and state. And um, she left the organization and founded her own organization, which, again, she couldn't afford to keep going. But I don't know, they had a kind of a off-and-on relationship. I mean, Susan B. Anthony visited Matilda on her deathbed in Chicago, mm -hmm. and Matilda tried to give her a copy of her radical book, Woman, Church, and State, then, but Anthony refused to take it. Really? So after Matilda died, she died first, and... Um, Susan B. Anthony, I think, was just, she wanted to be the star at all times. Mm. So she just kind of wrote Matilda out of history, and Stanton did the same thing. Oh, Stanton. I was going to ask if she had a uh, better relationship with Stanton, who was from Johnstown, which is uh, kind of in our area, maybe I've heard yeah. more about her. She was, she was much more like Stanton, and she felt really betrayed when the split came and Stanton stuck with Anthony instead of with her. Um, and again, they kind of made up. Matilda visited Stanton at her apartment in New York. They worked together on the women's Bible, although they had another falling out over that. It's just sad. But in Stanton's autobiography, she didn't really talk about Matilda, even though Matilda had been her closest, um, not exactly her closest friend, that was Susan B. Anthony, but closest to her in, in thinking and believing that religion oppressed women and you know, their political beliefs were the closest of any two women in the movement. But Stanton, in the end, went with with Anthony, and um, Matilda felt betrayed. Mm -hmm. Angelica Shirley Carpenter with us, the author of Born Criminal, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, Radical Suffragist. We have about uh, six minutes uh, left, Angelica. You, We alluded to this when we started out, that um, there's a, a she was the mother-in-law of the author of The Wizard of Oz, L. Frank Baum. And I, I've not actually read any of Baum's stuff. I've seen the movie, Wizard of Oz. But I, I gather uh, that Baum, in his books that he wrote about Oz, had women as powerful leaders in Oz, didn't he? And was that because of his mother-in-law? Well, who can say? I mean, first of all, you have got to read The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, okay? You can't. You can't not do that, but um, many people don't realize that L. Frank Baum wrote 14 Oz books, and in the first one, the wizard gets deposed, as, he, as happens in the movie. In the second one, the rightful ruler of Oz is um, 
restored to the, or put on the throne for the first time, and she's a fairy princess. And after that, she rules Oz with the help of Glinda the Good, and so it's a, a matriarchal society. Well, anyway, it's women in charge always for the rest of the books. And he definitely spoofs the um, women's movement in the second book where he has General Ginger and her army of revolt um, invade the Emerald City to steal all the jewels for themselves. And they are dressed in uniforms, and, and they're very pretty. And when they, come, when they come to the guardian of the gates, he says, what do you want? And General Ginger says, we're revolting. And he says, well, you don't look it. <laughs> so it's funny. So he was teasing the women's movement at that point. But definitely Dorothy, even in the first book, you see what a strong American heroine Dorothy is who makes up her own mind and takes action on her own. And whether Matilda inspired that, I don't know. But, you know, it wasn't just Matilda. He lived with her daughter who thought the same way she did. And he lived with Matilda. It's really fun to think of them um, writing under the same roof. Um, he's writing fairy tales, and she encouraged him to do it. And she's writing these radical feminist diatribes. <laughs> and very happily, they're having dinner together. Well, at first, there was sort of a testy relationship. What? Yeah, at first, he was an actor. He hadn't had any education. Um, he was rich. She thought he was kind of a spoiled rich boy. And um, her daughter was in Cornell. She was in, I think, the second class that admitted women. And she dropped out in her sophomore year to marry L. Frank Baum. And Matilda wanted her daughter to finish college like her other children had and go to law school. So she didn't think it was a good idea for her to marry L. Frank Baum. But Maud said she was going to do it anyway. And um, Matilda came around. Frank was very charming, and he worked hard to win Matilda over. And it was when he began telling stories to their four sons and when Matilda was living with them part of each year that she thought he would be a wonderful author for children. And by then she was, of course, a published and well-known author. And she encouraged him to publish, too. And she died in 1898, right? I mean, that was right. two decades before uh, women got the right to vote. Took them 22 years. What was her state of thinking on the, the on what was happening to women uh, just before she died? Was she optimistic or was she uh, discouraged? She always felt that it would come. And by the time she died... People had gone from making fun of the movement and saying awful things about its leaders to thinking that it was inevitable, that women would get the vote someday. But, you know, Grover Cleveland didn't want to give it to them, and whoever followed him, and Woodrow Wilson didn't want to do it either. But eventually, finally, they just... I think the women just wore them down. And again, the point you made at the beginning, uh, the book is published by, what, the South Dakota Historical Society? Yes. And they're interested in this because that's where Matilda Jocelyn Gage lived at the end of her life. Yeah, she lived there in the winters during the 1880s. And she also campaigned there in the 1870s as um, Dakota Territory was trying to form a state of South Dakota. She wanted to have um, women's votes in the state constitution, but she lost that round. Have you, did you ever come up here to Cicero and Fayetteville and see those, those sites? Oh, I've been to Fayetteville, and... Um, I would love to come. Um, she went to Saratoga Springs a lot and put on conferences there. I would love to see that. Haven't, and I have um, a 
relative in Albany, so I want to come there very much, but I haven't been there yet. And you live out in California. Yeah. I've been to Fayetteville several times, and I've been to Susan B. Anthony's house and Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Cady Stanton's house in Seneca Falls, but there's a lot more to see. Matilda's house in Fayetteville is a museum now. Is it? It's very worth seeing. Um, and the website is matildajoslyngage.org. Angelica Shirley Carpenter has joined us. She's the author of Born Criminal, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, Radical Suffragist. You've been listening to The Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.